Is it working? Is it ever working? No. Oh, hello. I should look at you. <laughs> no, you should keep staring at the wall instead of conversing with me like a normal human being. We're sitting in the den. It's weird. <laughs> it's weird to sit in the den. <laughs> Hide from it. So you can't see this, but Willow is slumped down behind a bookshelf so that we can't see each other, which isn't doing us any good because we can always see each other when we're recording on Zoom. It's not like yep. you're replicating the experience. Uh, boy, oh boy, Terry Gilliam yeah. this week. Terry Gilliam, who coincidentally died, no, oh. <laughs> was in the news this week, though. Uh, there was an article being passed around. Um, this movie that we're watching this week. He wasn't in the news for anything terrible, was he? Oh, the movie we're watching this week is Brazil. Yep. Uh, it's the second installment of what he refers to as his, like, I think, imagination trilogy. It started with Time Bandits, mm-hmm. then it's Brazil, and then The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. He considers, like, part of a rough trilogy about imagination. And the first movie is about the imagination of a child. This is about the imagination of a middle-aged man. And then Munchausen is the imagination of an elderly man. Now, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen had a child lead, not lead, but like, one of the main characters was a child. Had a mm-hmm. billion other celebrities in it. Uh, Canadian actress Sarah Polly, who was famous for playing Ramona Quimby. Great. And she's now a very famous filmmaker in her own right. Mm-hmm. Very respected. And her autobiography is coming out. And they publish an excerpt from it about her experience filming Baron Munchausen. Titled. Can you tell me if this, like, what is happening? Because I don't. It took me years to see how responsible Terry Gilliam was for my terror. It took me years to see how responsible Terry Gilliam was for my terror. Of what? Uh, Basically, the filming of Baron Munchausen gave her PTSD for the rest of her life. Mm -hmm. Because Terry Gilliam is not good with kids. No. And she was subject to scenes of terrifying explosions Mm -hmm. in which she felt not at all safe understandable and whenever she would break down crying and beg not to have to film anymore her parents her dad especially would be like you gotta do it little girl uh there was also an underwater scene where she almost drowned there were explosions in the water uh and it took her a long time to figure out like wait a minute the reason i am the way i am is because of this nightmarish experience filming baron Munchausen. she uh when he was making the movie Tideland, which had another child lead, she actually wrote to him, was like, Terry, hey, I don't know if you know this, but the experience on Baron Munchausen was really bad, and I hope that you you know, will treat this child with more delicate sensibilities than you treated me. And he was like, oh, I had no idea. I don't know what the experience on Tideland ended up being like, uh, but the long and short of all the interviews and stuff was that Terry Gilliam completely lacks the ability to sympathize with other people. Mm-hmm. Like, completely. Which is weird, because his movies are about humanity, and they're very emotional and mm-hmm. sympathetic. I don't think he lacks emotion. I just think it doesn't occur to him that other people have feelings that are different <laughs> from his. Yep. Which is probably why it's so hard to make films with him. Because he thinks he's right all the time. Which is fine if you're working with a bunch of grown-ups who are on your side. Mm-hmm. And are like, cool, let's just do what Terry wants. But when you're working with 10-year-olds, probably not a good mix. So it wasn't that he was like deliberately like abusive. Mm-hmm. It's just that he has no sense of 
what is good for people. I also think maybe it's not all on him. Maybe her parents. Her parents, too, yeah. probably should have stepped in. But also, like, when you see interviews with him and you see, hear, the, like, the, the, the very, like, harmful things he says now, mm-hmm. uh, I'm like, yeah, this is a guy who's just like, I don't understand why everyone's so upset. I'm just, I have the right to say what I want to say. Why is everyone so I'm like, yeah, you're hurting people. I don't think that's necessarily an uncommon thing anymore. No. I don't think it was ever uncommon. I think people just didn't acknowledge it. But I think he has no interest in not hurting people because he doesn't, like, he's just like, I don't know. It's very frustrating. It's very frustrating. I also think that's also not uncommon. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, What a jerk, that Terry Gilliam. Makes some Uh, good movies, though. Makes some good movies, or used to. Um, Hasn't in a while. The man he killed, Don Quixote, is... I thought you were going to say he killed a man for a second. He killed a man. <laughs> no, he is not. Well, surprisingly, has never killed a man. Maybe he has. We just don't know about it. Maybe he has. Uh, I think all the Monty Pythons got one. They each got one. You get one one murder if you're in Monty Python. <laughs> yeah, that was the joy. But this movie, Brazil, 1985. You've never seen it. Nope. Uh, one of my favorite movies. Uh, I think one of your mom's favorite movies. Uh, she used to watch it. And it's a piece of work. And... One of those movies that Guillermo del Toro is like, yeah, this movie completely influenced like my style and my sensibility. And about half of all filmmakers are like, yeah, Brazil is one of the reasons I make movies the way I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You just leaned into your mic in a way that looked like you're about to say something profound. I'm hungry. <laughs> Why don't you ever eat? I don't have time. Why don't you get up a little earlier? Because uh, I just sleep through my alarm. Would you like me to make you an egg? No, I'm okay. Are you sure? Because you just collapsed and said, I'm hungry. <laughs> I'm fine. I can get you food. No, I'm okay. Okay. Let me know if you need to eat or if you're going to like collapse. <laughs> I'll be fine. Uh, Brazil? is what we're going to watch today mm-hmm. and it's got a cast of thousands and it's almost every single special effect you see in this movie was was practical and done in camera uh which is amazing there's a whole lot of things that are amazing about this movie uh, i can't say much else about it because most of the drama behind the making of this film happened after it was made the drama behind the release of this film was such that an entire book was written about the release of this film and an entire documentary was made about the release of this film. Not the making of this film. The release into theaters of this film was such a drama that it was being written about in real time in the trades as it happened. People were like, what is going on with Brazil? Resulted in two versions of this movie coming out, uh, one of which is actually a special feature on the Blu-ray uh and uh and made terry gilliam an even more angry and frustrated soul than he was before uh and uh but it ultimately resulted in a pretty good movie coming out so uh brazil you ready to watch yes let's watch that movie i am phil i'm willow and you are hungry i'm hungry also disclaimer i wasn't trying to defend terry gilliam for his abuse of children no no no. you're just saying it is not uncommon yeah in the world (laughs) in the professional world would you some toast maybe would you like a piece of toast no i'm good uh maybe i can pop you up some corn okay a bag of peas popcorn (laughs) wait i'm so lost ending end end this is end it's del Del toro Toro time Hungry. Hungry. Click. Get morbed. Get morbed. <laughs>
I saw, okay, so I was taking a walk the other day and I saw someone, there was like kids have been chalk drawing on the mm-hmm. sidewalks and one of them wrote, are you Morbin? <laughs> and, Good. but clearly written by a little kid. So yep. it's nice to know that the absurdities of our age have penetrated the very youngest of youths. Ah, uh. uh, also happy that we'll never have to watch that movie again. Yep. Unless you name a cat after. What was it you were going to do? <laughs> I don't. Oh, I was going to name a cat. I was going to call a cat Milo, but have its legal name be Lucian. <laughs> do cats have legal names? Yes, okay. they have legal names. So you can fill out. You have to fill out paperwork. Okay. When you adopt them to fill out their legal name. going to name your cat Lucian, but call it Milo. That's a great idea. We're talking about Brazil. Did yes. you know that there is a mythical land called Brazil? Like a real place? Well, no, because it's mythical. A phantom island said to lie in the Atlantic Ocean west of Ireland called Brazil, also known as High Brazil, is from Irish mythology dating back to like the 1500s. It has no connection to the name of the country Brazil. Absolutely none. It's just a coincidence they're named the same thing. There's no like linguistic connection oh wait there's an atlas from the 1300s that shows brazil off the coast yeah it's it's just weird that there was this other place called brazil (laughs) that never existed are you sure there's no connection (laughs) i am sure it's just a coincidence like it's one of those weird like linguistic coincidences oh well i guess that happens sometimes yeah it does happen sometimes (laughs) once Uh, maybe (laughs) yeah uh it's just yeah i I guess it happens in languages, it, there are things that there's a term for it in languages where like two words evolve separately from each other, but they sound exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And so, there's a thing where they even come to mean basically the same thing, but it's just a coincidence. I can't remember what it's called. I think it is called a coinkydink. As 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 it is. As it is. As as happens, a massive coinkydink. Uh, we saw Brazil. We saw 1985's Brazil. We watched it together. We did. In in the couch. On the couch. In the couch. <laughs> Sunken deep between the cushions, we watched. We had the biggest bowls of popcorn ever. So I made popcorn to watch while we ate and uh, made too much. <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't bother to measure out the raw kernels. Nope. No. But uh, you did get to see the popcorn popper in action. For the first time in my life. How long has that machine been in that house? Uh, well, we've had that. So 17 years I've known of that machine. You've never seen it in action. Never seen it in Cause action. Because Alana owned it before she knew me. So, yeah, that's a, it's a long time. I can't believe we've never popped corn in front of In any case, we popped a lot of popcorn. We popped popcorn in the microwave. What? Not Well, yes, but no. We that The other day we popped popcorn. Yes. For real. Not in the microwave. Not in the microwave. It was right there in front of us. Purple popcorn, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, It wasn't purple. It wasn't purple when it popped. It was the kernels are purple. I don't know the significance of that. And then we sat and we watched Terry Gilliam's Brazil from 1985. Yep. First thoughts. I cringed. First thoughts. Cringed a lot. You did. A lot. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you did not get to see Willow hiding under the blanket (laughs) in certain scenes. Not from like scary scenes, but from like near kissing. It was the worst. I don't understand. It was the worst relationship thing ever. 
It is not supposed to be a good, healthy relationship. No, but it was just the hardest thing to watch. (laughs) Yeah, you were... So Willow was literally, like, hiding under the... Like, every time the characters would get close to each other... Mitzi does this. But she does does it with, like, teen romances. Mm -hmm. This was Brazil, which is as... Which presumably contains romance, but it isn't really romance. That's probably why I was cringing. Yeah, because Sam <laughs> Lowry, our main character, Sam Lowry, played by Jonathan Price, uh, Academy Award nominated, Tony Award winning Jonathan Price, uh, is not a is not a romantic hero in this movie or yeah. in real life, I guess. <laughs> uh, one thing I love about this movie, I love movies. This is like a sub genre of film that I am obsessed with, and I don't know people don't talk about it much. I love movies that are about people who think they are in a certain genre of movie only to be horribly disabused of that notion by the end. They find out, oh, I'm not actually the hero of an action movie. Oh, I'm not actually the hero of this horror movie. I'm just a bit player and now I'm dead. Like I love movies like that. Yeah. I don't know what you call those. Tragedies. <laughs> kind of, yeah, because... Sam Lowry spends the bulk of this movie believing he is the unlikely hero of uh, of an adventure story where he's going to swoop in, save the girl, fix the problems, and get away scot free. He honestly believes that, and to me, that's the only reason. That's the that's the only reason this movie works is because our our protagonist is deluded into thinking he is an action hero. I mean, if he wasn't, he would not have done any of the things he did. <laughs> right. Uh, he goes off. On a on a with a plan that is doomed to failure, <laughs> chasing after a woman who is not interested in him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, who I mean, she ultimately sleeps with him. Yeah, but I think it seems to be mostly just kind of out of like he's the only guy in this world who who doesn't seem to be actively trying to kill her. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and he thinks that he is he is part of some great conspiracy that is actually just the government trying to quiet hush up every single person who was privy to a simple embarrassing thing that they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we never find out who's in charge, who's at the top. Like even the guy who's at the top is only the assistant to the guy who's at the top. Yeah, uh, we never discover any grand conspiracy because there is no conspiracy. Just yeah. the world is run by, is happily run by a nightmare bureaucracy that just wants everyone to shut up and fill out the right form. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The only characters besides the main girl that I ever felt sympathy for <laughs> were yes. the surface workers. <laughs> you, so, okay. So, because of the way your brain works, <laughs> the two. Evil service workers, the 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 air conditioning repairmen, show up, and you you're like, I only sympathize with them. <laughs> yep. You were like, these are the two characters who I feel the worst for in this whole movie, and I'm like, they are wicked human beings. They are mean and cruel. <laughs> they enjoy me- treating Sam like crap. He treated them like crap first. I disagree. <laughs> he did. All they were doing, they showed up like he wanted them to. And then he was like, no, you got to do all the form stuff because I'm housing a terrorist. Get out of here. And they're like, what? 
He was just trying to get rid of them. And they were yeah. they were they were grinning evilly at him. Not I don't I didn't see it that way. I guess I just feel like the demonization of service workers is not an appropriate thing to do in this time period. Okay, okay, but this movie was made in nineteen eighty five. Yeah. But I can't I just I can't demonize service workers at this point because they put up with so much crap. They do put up with so much crap. But I also know that like there that, are there that are... one service worker had like an anxiety attack because of what was going on. Okay, but like I was just reading a thread on Twitter about uh about I believe it was maybe not UPS but Federal Express or something one of those delivery things. And this person writes writes about the fact that they got their parcel and it was like completely destroyed, like crushed. And people who used to work for the company started writing in and they were like, "Oh yeah, it's a it's all contracted workers. They don't care." I watched, they're like, I, I left the job because, like, I watched people deliberately smashing objects, like, packages marked fragile. Like, they don't earn any money. They don't care about the job. They're just there to antagonize you. And people started writing in, and they were like, you can't be angry at them for destroying, for de- you can't be angry at them for destroying your property because they're not paid enough to care. Well, I feel like that's an entirely different situation than what we're talking about. What I'm about. talking about, though, is that you have to draw the line somewhere. Like, I, I care about service workers. I, of course, I think what they did was wrong, but I also understand, like, have you seen the world they're living in? I feel that, that Spoor, their names are Spoor and I believe Dowser. Spoor and Dowser show up and they aren't going to fix anything. They're never going, like, when you see them finally trying to fix it, their job is not to fix anything. It's to continue making the problem worse. Like, that's why Robert De Niro exists as a rogue repairman, because nothing gets fixed in their world. So a terrorist is someone who goes and actually fixes things. I still feel bad for them. (laughs) I'm sorry my empathy doesn't work the way you want it to. But maybe I just hated the main character so much that at that point, anyone tormenting him, <laughs> I felt sympathy for. So Brazil. Brazil is set not in the future, really. It's set in the present. Uh, because as Terry Gilliam says, all this stuff is happening anyway. It may not be happening where you live, but it's happening. Like, everything you see is based on actual things. From the way It pe- actually is set in the past because it takes place in the 20th century. Well, <laughs> from, the way, from the way people are kidnapped by the government uh like in those bags uh to the way people are charged for their own torture that's all stuff that's happened that uh that has Mm -hmm. happened throughout the world is documented continues to happen Uh, a lot of the stuff was lifted directly from the nazis uh i believe it was the night of long knives uh hitler accident like one there was a there was a man who was accidentally arrested during the night of long knives and tortured because his name was a name was misspelled on the mm-hmm. list, and that was kind of the thing that Terry Gilliam read and was like, "Well, let's take this to its logical conclusion." Because actually, Hitler let the guy go once the problem was discovered, uh, and apologized to his family. Which I guess, good on you, Hitler. <laughs> but Terry Gilliam was like, "It doesn't usually end up that way. Let's take yeah. this to its logical conclusion," uh, and. Yeah, so the original concept behind this was, you know, how basically it was like, how do you keep living in a world that doesn't care about your humanity? That was the original concept. Mm -hmm. People living in a world in which everyone is dehumanized, but you got to dream, you got to imagine. And then he came up with the idea of the person accidentally getting uh, tortured to death and... 
then Tom Stoppard was like, what if it's because of a name mix-up? And then what if it's because of a bug? And originally it was going to be, you were supposed to follow this bug from the like rainforest as the rainforest was being deforested. Mm-hmm. Like the forest is deforested, so this bug flies away and ends up in this office where it gets smashed and then malfunctions a computer and causes the name. Like the whole thing it's was a, supposed to, what? It's a bug in the system. It's literally a bug in the system. Yeah. <laughs> and you were supposed to see like, oh, it's because they were destroying the environment in the first place. Like it all like, yeah. So that's so yeah. So all of that because of one because of one person, one bug just throws everything into into turmoil but does it that's my question is are things actually thrown into turmoil or is it simply in the mind of sam lowry that things are thrown into turmoil okay so here's what happens okay (laughs) there's the bug in the system Mm -hmm. it somehow makes a b appear on the page instead of a t because so this poor unfortunate soul's last name is buttle right (laughs) Um, he gets arrested in quotation marks. Yeah, he gets kidnapped in front of his family the day before Christmas. Mm-hmm. It's a week before Christmas. I don't really understand the timeline. It's of this Christmas movie. time. Yeah. Um, in front of his kids, uh, he gets dragged away. His wife is like, "What the hell is going on?" The main woman lives above him. Just mm-hmm. had her floor <laughs> broken. <laughs> Yeah. Because they, they make a circle. They just carve a circle into the floor and drop down through it. Yeah. Um, and she's like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. Uh, and he, it turns out it was mistaken arrest. Sam Lowry's department is like the department of, the department of information. Department of records. Yeah. Department of records. He works for the department of records, which controls the flow of information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Yes, and information retrieval is the people who kidnap people and torture them for information. Yeah. They also do other things to get information, though, like whatever the hell they're doing in their tiny box offices. Right. Because, uh, like, being a torturer is, like, the second highest rank you can get to or something. Yeah, it's pretty powerful. It's a pretty powerful rank. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, this Buttle is kidnapped mistakenly because of a bug in the system. Uh, Jill, who's his upstairs neighbor, uh, witnesses it happening. So her goal, her only goal is to figure out what happened to Buttle. Like, she's just trying to get information. Yeah. And it's a bureaucratic nightmare because this is, that's what this world is. Everything has paperwork. Mm -hmm. And you have to deal with a bunch of cranky men who don't want to stamp your papers. Yeah. Uh, and it's basically papers, please, except for with everything. And Sam works for the department that controls the flow of information in the sense that like they they take care of like billing and mm-hmm. processing. And it, one way or another, it comes to pass that the wrong person was arrested. Uh, and so because people are charged for their own torture, his wife is allowed a a uh, a uh, what's it called when you give money back to someone? A refund. A refund. Uh, which never happens in this world. Yeah. Uh, and because she's guaranteed a refund, a check is cut to her, but nobody knows how to get the check to her because she doesn't have a bank account. So Sam's boss is supposed to sign over the check, but the boss is such a, played by Bilbo Baggins himself, mm-hmm. uh, but Ian Holm, is so freaked out by the thought of having to sign something over to somebody that Sam does it for him, forges his signature in front of him. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, which is one of those big hints that like this guy doesn't want to take responsibility for anything. Sam is willing to be a to be a hero for someone, even if it just means signing their name. And this is kind of the beginning of Sam entering a world uh, of of moral uncertainty because he's just trying to keep his head down and do his job. Yep. And but he goes to deliver the check to Buttle's widow, and she doesn't take it well. No. Yeah. I mean, who would? No, of course not. If somebody tried to hand me a check for the refund of my partner's life, I'd be like, oh, you want a shotgun to the face then? That's what you want. <laughs> uh, the actress, Sheila Reed, who plays Mrs. Buttle, uh, while Sam is trying to give her the check, it's a tight, it's a close-up on her face. She doesn't blink during the entire take, uh, but her eyes do fill with tears. And then she freaks out at Sam. And it is an amazing performance. She has a small performance, but it is amazing, her freak out at Sam. It's the first, like, real emotion Mm -hmm. in the movie. Like, all of a sudden, he's just confronted with this woman absolutely breaking down, begging begging to find out what happened to her husband's body. Yeah. Um, also his kids are there (laughs) right except for the daughter who is outside setting sam's car on fire yeah his little tiny car Mm -hmm. yeah the worst car the worst car in the world a real car that they had to buy a few uh a few of the remaining like like examples of one of which they destroyed for the for the building for the creation of the film in order to set it on fire and i'm like why didn't they just Put together a fake shell of one to set on fire. You gotta have it be real, dude. <laughs> gotta have it be real. Uh, and real it was. Almost everything in this movie was real. Uh, most stuff was filmed in places they found on location, like uh, warehouses and electrical places. They built a few sets, but they built them small and filmed them with wide-angle lenses, so they looked huge. Mm-hmm. It's brilliant. brilliant. This is the beginning of Terry Gilliam really using wide-angle lenses to get around to budget, basically. Uh, but it also meant that you had to be very careful where people were so you didn't accidentally catch people with the camera. So, uh, mm-hmm. Carrie carefully choreographed the movie. So, yeah, so Sam sees Jill through the hole in the ceiling and yeah. recognizes her as a woman he's been dreaming about in his fantasy, high fantasy adventure dreams. Yes. <laughs> yes. Also, this entire time, Sam's apartment has been slowly breaking to pieces. Yes, his little tiny apartment. The 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 heat he has to have a little tiny apartment. He has a pretty big apartment. <laughs> That's true. That's true. It is. It's a good size apartment for someone like a single man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it does take care of stuff for you. It makes breakfast for you. It gets your clothes ready for you. It turns on the Very shower poorly. for you. Oh yeah, it does it all poorly. That's the whole idea like behind Wallace this world. Wallace and Gromit. Uh, everything in this world, all the technology looks like it was thrown together from other technologies because it was. Yep. The idea is that no one creates anything new in this world. They just keep adding to other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also ductwork everywhere. And there's devils inside all of the ductwork. So it's not supposed to be an actual living creature inside the ducts. It's supposed to feel like a living creature. <laughs> It does sound like an actual living creature inside the ducts, though. And that's based on a real thing. Uh, Gilliam said that in England, there's a lot of older houses that were were retrofitted with plumbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in order to retrofit a house with plumbing, they would just build the plumbing onto the outside. 
so that you'd pass by these beautiful old houses with all these just modern pipe work just sticking out of them. And he was like, what if we just did that everywhere? What if we just, everything was brought to a house through ducts? Like everything was piped into your house, your heat, your electricity, your food, everything was just piped in. Uh, and you just stuck ducks up to the sides of your house where everything was pumped in. And so that's that was the aesthetic. Originally, I guess the Buttles were supposed to live out in the country. And it was supposed to be this little house with a giant duct on the side of the on the exterior wall like this huge duct that just fed out like way 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 just went to the city but you know budget and all that yeah yeah um (laughs) so yeah this is begins sam's journey into the world of of bureaucracy as he tries to tries to he's basically trying to find a jill most of the time Mm-hmm. Yeah, because she's wanted as a criminal. Yeah, yeah. He at first he first sees her <clears throat> when he is going into work. Yes, because uh, she wants information. She's come from information retrieval. Who sent her to his office building? <laughs> yes, but he thinks he's hallucinating because there's some weird camera stuff going on. Right, of course. There's always weird camera stuff going mm-hmm. on. Uh, so he's been trying to find her. He learns that her file is sealed. Mm-hmm. And so but he, he also, he's recently gotten a promotion because of his mother. Um, right. His mother played by Catherine Hellman, who we saw in, in Time Bandits as the wife mm-hmm. of the, of the guy on the boat. Like there was mm-hmm. the ship and she was the wife yeah. of like the ogre or the, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, so this is his second time working with her. Yeah. She plays Sam's, Sam's mother who is addicted to plastic surgery. Yeah. Is it plastic surgery? (laughs) It is. And we'll get into that because I listened to the commentary track and it reveals some interesting things about Gilliam's, like, why he made this movie. He realized some things about why he made this movie as he was doing the commentary track. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. So he gets Uh, gets his promotion from his mom. He's like, I don't want to be promoted. I just want to keep my head down and do my work. And she's like, but you have to be promoted. You have to wear a nice suit and do the nice things and whatever. Yeah. Um, and he's like, I don't I don't want to be promoted. And the entire time they're having this conversation, she's running around doing things. Mm-hmm. And he's like, please just listen to me. And she's just talking at him and blah, 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 not listening to anything he's saying. They go to a restaurant, the worst restaurant with <laughs> the best character in it. Yep. Um <laughs> I don't remember her name, but she's the best. Oh, you're talking about the uh, the uh, the daughter, the daughter of, of, of Shirley. Yeah, Shirley, the daughter of Mrs. Terrain, mm-hmm. who has the weirdest. She's great. Um, then some stuff happens. I think that's after that is when the check stuff happens. Mm-hmm. Um, he looks up Jill, realizes that she is. She, he can't access her file because he doesn't have the required level, clearance level. Uh, so he's like, well, I guess I'm going to get promoted. And his boss is like, psych, that's not available to you anymore because I signed the paperwork for you. Right. His his boss, who does not want Sam to leave their department, mm-hmm. uh, uh, yeah, is, is doing everything he can to keep Sam there. But Sam knows that the only way he's going to get access to Jill's information is through this through yeah. this re- re- into the into information retrieval mm-hmm. yeah so he goes to a party with his mother yes 
to talk to the guy in charge of it all. Right. The guy who's the assistant of the guy who's in charge of it all. Right. Mr. Helpman, the ironically mm-hmm. named Mr. Helpman, who's in a wheelchair. Uh, who knew Sam's father. Right. Who was his superior. <laughs> Mr. Helpman is the deputy minister of information. Uh, and yeah, so he's the second in command to the whoever is at the top who we never find out who's at the top and how did sam's father die the whole thing with sam's father is so weird and i always forget it's part of the it's part of the plot Mm -hmm. like i always forget there's this weird thing about sam's father mr helpman having a relationship with sam's mother this sort of like weird implication that mr helpman might be sam's father and the whole thing with like the secret code here I am. It's very weird. It's just very weird. Did Sam's father ever actually exist? <laughs> He's the ghost in the machine, apparently. Yeah. Um, but he gets the job because of connections. Right. And then we have the best fight scene in the movie. Oh, also this entire time there's been extended like dream sequences. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. No, there's a lot going on here. But uh, let's just stick to the main plot right now. So yeah. Sam gets Sam gets the... He gets... The promotion. He goes to information retrieval, which uh, uh, his his old records job was in like this sort of like underground, bustling, dark, noisy uh, uh, office building. And information retrieval is white and clean, and there's no one around. Yeah. Uh, but he's unless you're talking to his boss, in which case there's a bunch of people around. Right. There's like this ironic walk and talk scene that goes on forever. Um, like they're constantly walking. We and get talking. a horror movie shot. Of like, you know, when you're like in horror movies, when you're in a parking garage and you see something like move slightly in the background. Yes. We get that. See, we get a shot of that, of the the crowd of people moving quickly in the background. And then they appear right in front of you. There's also some great text stuff going on where every little thing Sam has done in this movie has obviously been being documented by the government because uh, his boss, his new boss at Information Retrieval, asks him questions they go by so fast just about like what sam's done with a personal transporter uh you know like what sam's done with like the the check that that doesn't seem to have ever been cashed these little things that have gone by that by the end of the movie will have all added up like one of the ones is that sam forged his boss's signature onto the check even though he was asked to uh there's like a case being built against sam that he does not realize is happening it's fascinating but he gets to his new office, which is a broom closet, as all the offices in this building are. And he tries to sit at his desk. This was something I didn't notice until it was pointed out in the in the commentary track. Like it's it's because the, the office is actually a, a single office with a wall built down the middle. Yeah. of it. I didn't. I've seen this movie a million times. What 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 it's supposed to be is that Sam was hired. And they just threw this wall into the middle of this other guy's office. So there's now a wall down the middle, like splitting everything in half. But that's why the other guy is the only one with a computer, because it's just one office. Okay. <laughs> that this other guy, like they came in and built a wall down the middle of his office. And now he doesn't have access to anything on the other side. And that explains why he's f- so mean to Sam and just keeps pulling the desk over. Because, uh, because it wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> Rip that guy. That's uh, Harvey Lime is the co-worker, and he's played by Charles McCowan, who is one of the screenwriters of this movie. 
And he's very funny. He is. Um, I feel so bad for him as well. <laughs> yes. Uh, he did not ask for this. Well, as bad as you can feel for someone who works for the torture department. Okay. What my question is, I mean, I can't feel like all of them are stuck in this world together. Right. Right. Like I, they're just people. They're not the ones in charge. They're just doing their best to survive. <laughs> uh, I mean, you can't say that Sam is one of the few people trying to do something about it. Because uh, he's realized there's a problem, and instead of putting his head down, he's now putting himself at yeah. risk. Which uh, is, you know, he's very brave for doing that, and I understand why he did it. Yeah, he just did it very poorly. <laughs> it's worth remembering too that at no point Sam thinks, even if Sam succeeded, it wouldn't change anything mm-hmm. because so. Jill, the woman, played by Kim Greist, who Terry Gilliam did not want to hire. Mm-hmm. Um, he really wanted Ellen Barkin. He also considered, and that was like a big thing. He wanted Ellen Barkin for the part. Uh, he also wanted Jamie Lee Curtis or Rebecca De Mornay or Ray Don Chong or Joanna Pacula or Rosanna Arquette or Kelly McGillis or Madonna. But... They he settled on Kim Greist, Greist uh, because he thought it was important to have an unknown. And a lot of these actors I just named were relatively unknown at the time. Like they were familiar, but she had only done one movie. She had been in the movie Chud. He casts her. He hires her. He begins working with her. He hates her. And that's why her role, she hardly has any dialogue in the movie because mm-hmm. he just cut all of her scenes. He cut all of her dialogue because he just didn't like her. I don't know why. He just I guess he just felt she didn't get it. I thought she was fine. I think she's fine. She did great. I liked her a lot. Because um, Jonathan Price is the one who's acting all crazy. She just kind of has to be like a level-headed. Mm-hmm. Also, Jonathan Price was his original idea when he started working on this movie. When he first started writing the movie, Gillian was like, I want Jonathan Price to play this role. But that was in the 70s. Mm-hmm. By the time this movie came to be cast, he was like, Jonathan Price is too old. This guy's supposed to be young, like a new, like a fresh-faced young guy who's new to this world. So that's one of the, like, he, he was thinking about like Tom Cruise, who was like a child at the time, like like a young 20-something guy. And, but he was like, but Jonathan Price was still interested in the role. And he was just like, you know, I guess I'll just, I guess it actually works better if Sam Lowry is just a guy who's given up by this point. Yeah. And I, I agree. Like, it'd be weird with, like, mm-hmm. a young guy in the lead. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. So, he he gets this job in information retrieval. Uh, he finds out that, that, that Jill is, is wanted as a terrorist. Oh, because there's also explosions. No, she's not wanted as a terrorist. Right. He thinks she's wanted as a terrorist. Right. That's the thing. Because there's bombs going off every scene. Mm-hmm. And people are like killed by them. Yep. Uh, but we, it's sold in the news as terrorist bombings, but we never find out who these terrorists are. Or if there are any, it could just be the duct work. Yes, it could just be things exploding. We don't know, but the government says it's terrorists. We find out, of course, that Jill is only wanted by the government because she is privy to the fact that they made a mistake. Like, they just want to get her out of the way because they're embarrassed by her. And I find that yeah, fascinating. They're not going after the Buttle family because the Buttle family isn't doing anything. Right. 
She's the one trying to file paperwork and stuff. Mm-hmm. If she had just left it alone, which, you know, like that's a terrible thing to say because yeah. the whole point of the world is to help people. But if she had left it alone, they wouldn't come after her. Yeah. Sam is really only wanted by the government after a while because he just keeps not filing the correct paperwork. Yep. <laughs> like, and I find that hilarious. Like, the movie acts like there's a huge conspiracy going on, but there isn't. There's just bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Like, no one's trying to do anything. They're just trying to process the... Like, it's still an evil, horrible government. Like, clear, clearly, clearly something needs to change because torturing people and charging them for torture isn't great. No, isn't of course good not. at all. Yeah, it's obviously some kind of like, there's some kind of like horrible head of the of the country. We don't even know what country. Uh, but that brings us to, so Robert De Niro plays Harry Tuttle, who's the actual guy they meant to arrest in the beginning. And he is, as we said, a uh, a, a like heat, heating repair person who's yep. gone rogue. He has and, a grappling hook. Yep, he has a graphing hook, he has a gun, he has surgical tools that he uses to fix things that the government won't fix, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Sam's air conditioning. Okay, here's here's the thing. I didn't get from the movie that the repair people weren't going to be fixing it. The only thing I got from that was that the waiting was so long because they didn't afford to hire more people. That's all I got from that entire scene, to be honest. Like, I didn't get the the whole, like... They weren't actually fixing things. Right. Because De Niro fixes his heat, but then the repair guys show back up mm-hmm. and they find the device that De Niro used to fix things. They know a terrorist is involved. And then they just gut Sam's apartment. They tear it apart for no reason. Mm-hmm. The uh, reason is that there's. <laughs> I just. I feel like the reason is that there's a terrorist involved and that they have to do that because it's part of their job. Like, if. <laughs> If the go if if your job is okay, I just I think that there is a reason. Like it's it's not that they're just being jerks. It's that they're if you think there's a terrorist involved in fixing something, you kind of have to take it all apart to make sure nothing's <laughs> gone horribly wrong. I interpret it as their job is to not fix anything. That's my that's my takeaway. Also, they wear giant baseball caps mm-hmm. with very long bills. And Terry Gilliam said that he made them wear giant long baseball caps because he hates baseball caps. Nice. <laughs> and he was so angry that they were becoming a thing that people were wearing in the day to day that he was like, I'm going to put them in baseball caps. Baseball I caps. just I I didn't get any of the like them being malevolent thing. I just got that they were annoyed that that Sam was being a prick. <laughs> Regardless. Uh, their suits get filled with poop and they explode. <laughs> I don't think they explode. I think just the suits explode full of poop. In any case, moving on from that, the plastic surgery in this movie is interesting. So Sam's mom is getting plastic surgery all the time. She becomes younger. She grows younger and younger throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. But she has a friend named Mrs. Terrain, played by Barbara Hicks, who's hilarious. Who has a daughter named Shirley Terrain, played by Catherine Poxon, who I had a crush on when I was a teenager. Because I thought Shirley Terrain was so cute. Because I was a weird teenager. She's cute. <laughs> she's cute. And she's one of the funniest actors in the movie. She's amazing. I love her character. She makes these faces. Gilliam calls that out. He's like, you get these actors on set. And if you just let them bring their own stuff to the character, 
he's like Shirley Terrain has like three lines, but Catherine Pogson came in and was doing stuff that was so funny and made the character like a real character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she is, she makes, she's, she's hilarious. Um, she also is not attracted to Sam. No, <laughs> but Mrs. Terrain is getting her own cosmetic surgery, but it is not the same kind of surgery as, no. as uh, Catherine Hellman. What kind of surgery is Mrs. Terrain getting? Acid. Acid surgery. Uh, uh, done by Dr. Chapman, who's played by Jack Purvis, uh, who was in Time Bandits. Yes. Um, now, this... So, this is what Terry was Terry Gilliam was talking about in the commentary. I believe it was his father who got acid plastic surgery. This was a thing. That's a real thing? This was a thing at the time, when Gilliam was like a kid or young. He got acid plastic surgery. It burned his ear off. Yeah, because it's acid. And he had to get his, his ear reconstructed by an actual plastic surgeon. And that was the basis for all of the plastic surgery. And Gilliam's watching this movie in the commentary track and slowly coming to the realization that most of this movie is inspired by his distrust of plastic surgeons. Like even down to the torture stuff. He's like, wait a minute. I think, I think I have a lot more issues with this than I realize. (laughs) I just find that hilarious. And Mrs. Terrain, you never really see what happens to Mrs. Terrain because the end of the movie is actually all in, spoiler alert, all in Sam's head. But her body does end up dissolving from all the acid. It's acid. I don't understand why you would go to someone who claimed they could do plastic surgery with acid. I mean... And I'm talking about real life now because I didn't realize this was a thing. I mean, probably as much as someone who thought they could do reconstructive surgery with a scalpel. Like, it probably seems like any kind of like i'm going to rebuild i think the idea was it used like very tiny bits of acid to like reshape the tissue if somebody said i can reshape your face with acid i'd be like you're under arrest (laughs) i mean they wouldn't be lying you can definitely reshape someone's face with acid you just can't do it successfully (laughs) right or you can do it successfully you just can't do it the way they would be happy with yeah um so yeah so mrs terrain ends up well theoretically ends up dissolving from all the acid but and you see her body it's actually they made like basically like a gelatin body and filled it with real real organ meat and bones why (laughs) they say it smelled really bad why would you do that (laughs) because it had to look disgusting so uh you can do that without filling it with real organ meat and bones yeah but it looked disgusting so (laughs) i was so confused during the last part of that movie i didn't really even notice it to be honest it's supposed to be confusing it's supposed to be confusing because uh uh, it's a dream Mm -hmm. um so sam so sam's father was friends with mr helpman sam's father like you said he used to be high up on the in the in the government mr helpman gives sam the secret code to the executive elevator that takes him up to like he doesn't give him the secret code (laughs) He accidentally gives him the secret code. Well, he writes it out for him. I think he's yeah, giving I think, it to him. I thought it was that he he said that he always remember his father saying whatever it was. I can't remember. Here I am, J.H. Yeah. The ghost he always remember his father saying that. Yeah. Um, I don't think he meant to give Sam the secret code. I think he's just an idiot. Oh, I <laughs> thought he did because that's why he he spelled it out and then he wiped it away with his hand maybe i don't know i just think he's dumb sam's <laughs> father's name is jeremiah mm-hmm. 
And when you rearrange the letters of Jeremiah, you get E-R-I-M-J-H. Um, in any case. What is his last name? I, I assume Lowry. Mm. Um, and so in any case, Sam gets up there. He uses the computers to make it so that Jill is now officially legally dead. Yeah. He finds Jill. They have. Well, he doesn't se- find Jill. Well, <laughs> he had brought Jill to, to his mother's house. <laughs> he goes to to hide her there because his mother's out of town. He goes. They have. They they make sweet sweet love. She wraps herself up in a ribbon, which he undoes. Um, it's surprise. It's Christmas. Surprise nudity. Not really. Uh, the government bursts in, arrests him, presumably shoots Jill to death. Mm-hmm. Sam is then processed into information retrieval. We didn't even mention the fact that his only friend in the world, Jack, works for information retrieval. And is the one who killed Buttle. Right. He's like the head torturer. Mm-hmm. He's also a very good father. And husband. Except that he, he pretends his wife is named something else when Mr. Heltman forgets her name. Yeah, because her name's Allison or something, and he calls her Barbara. He calls her Barbara. He also and he forgets... has triplet daughters. Yeah, whose names he can't keep straight. But he, yep. it, yeah. Uh, Brings uh, them to work with him. Yeah, we've met Jack several times uh, throughout it. He's played by Michael Palin. A uh, former member of Monty Python, the only member of Monty Python in the movie. Um, and what's interesting is that Robert De Niro wanted to play Jack Lint. And Gilliam was like, no, well, first of all, I wrote this part for Michael Palin, so no. But also, Michael Palin is the nicest man in the world. And he has to be played by someone who is just automatically the nicest man in the world. <laughs> or I think that, I think that. Robert De Niro did a good job in his role. He did. He did. He pissed off Terry Gilliam a lot because he would insist on like 25 takes on each scene. Not not Gilliam. De Niro would. Mm-hmm. And he forgot his lines all the time because he yeah. was so nervous to be to be in this movie, uh, <laughs> which is strange because it's Robert De Niro. Um, but yeah, so Sam is processed through information retrieval. He's put into the torture chamber, which is inside a giant cooling tower. Jack comes in with a baby face on. Like and, all of... The, there's so many monsters in this movie, it's hard to keep track right, of Right. There's Oh, yeah. Oh, by the way, there's monsters. There's a giant samurai made out of computer parts. Yep. Uh, there's... Uh, Sam can fly. There's... Jill is in his dreams as a woman inside an embryonic sack. It's crazy. There's these baby face puppet people. They look kind of like mole people wearing yeah. baby faces. But also like Skeksis from the Dark Crystal, but with baby mm-hmm. faces. Yeah. And they're also the same they're the same baby face masks you see in Green Day's basket case video that the band wears. So Jack comes in wearing the baby face mask that he uses to torture people with. He sees that it's Sam. He gets all angry at him. He because now he's gonna have to torture his best friend. Mm-hmm. But then Tuttle, Robert De Niro comes bursting through the ceiling with a bunch of other terrorists, and they rescue Sam, they kill him, they shoot jack in the head it's the longest shot in the head death scene i've ever seen yeah because he rips his mask off and he has a bullet his head is exploded uh they fight their way out of the building turns out jill's not dead they rescue her but as there is as they're being chased by the government sam finds out that his mother is so young now that she looks like jill well, that's that's they they whoa. Well, Mrs. <laughs> you got all of that out of order. <laughs> well, there's there's a lot of chasing that happens. What happens is, Terrace rescues Sam. 
Yes. There's a bunch of fighting that happens in the building. A bunch of the... We say terrorists. They're just guys. A bunch of the guys die. Yes. Um, Sam and Daenerys are the only ones who survive. They get out into a, like a yard full of Christmas shoppers. Yes. And a bunch of papers have started raining from the sky after the explosion. Mm-hmm. And Tuttle gets turned into a paper mache man and floats away. Well, <laughs> he's struggling with the papers that are sticking to him. When Sam goes to help him, Tuttle's just dissolved. He's gone. Yeah. Which is, you know, indication that something might be a bit funky. Right. But we're the movie has so gradually moved us into this level of unreality that it's kind of hard to notice. Like, because the movie's yeah. already so weird. Yeah. Um, Sam's freaking out. All of the government officials are coming after him. He goes somewhere mm-hmm. to his mother's house, I think. Yeah. And it's turned into a theater mm-hmm. with a bunch of people sitting in like the chairs and there's a coffin in the center. It's a pink coffin. Yeah. His mother is there. She looks like Jill. He's freaking out. She's like, stop calling me mother, you weirdo. Because all the guys around her think she's a young lady. Right. Um, the people burst into the funeral. He knocks the coffin over. Jelly lady spills out, explodes yep. everywhere. He falls into the bottom of the coffin. And he's in a truck. Yes, he falls through the coffin. Falls through into the through the roof of a... They have these houses that Jill's job is to like haul these houses back and forth. They're yeah. just these like block one room houses. Falls to the roof, realizes he's fallen through onto the house that's on the bed of the truck she's driving. Climbs into the front seat to be with her, and they drive off into the sunset. Es- and they have cows at the end. Yep, they're in a little hut. They're they've escaped the city. They are living out on a farm with cows, and it is an idyllic country life for them. Except for what? It's a dream is not only a dream it is the dream of a man who is has lost his mind because he has been tortured into insanity mm-hmm. sam is never rescued he's still in the chair in the torture chamber uh jack lint and mr helpman are there and they declare sam a lost cause sam is just humming he is humming the song brazil which has been playing throughout the entirety of this movie yep characters hum it they sing it it's part of the score and uh, the credits roll, and as the credits roll, we just stay on Sam strapped into the torture chair. Uh, it never, it never leaves us. Sam is just strapped to a torture chair to live the rest of his life. And as Gilliam says, it's actually a happy ending because the only way to escape this world is to escape into your imagination. And now Sam gets to live in his imagination forever. Does that mean his mom has to pay all of his debts? I guess she seems to have the money. Also, if his mom and Mr. Helpman are in a relationship, which is implied, does that mean Mr. Helpman also has to pay off the debts? Probably. Huh. Well, that's a good fitting end for that guy. And, uh, yeah, it it is. And, I mean... Mr. Helpman's dressed like Santa Claus for the rest of the movie, by the way. Right, because it is a Christmas movie. Yes, clearly. (laughs) Yes. Oh, the first time Sam tries to take the executive elevator, he doesn't know it's the executive elevator. And a guy, a police officer, comes over and is like, "Hey, what you doing?" And Sam's like, "I gotta get, gotta move, I gotta go." 
And he's like, I need you to sign this paperwork to say that you understand that this is a situation. Now, gotta go. Leave. Bye. You know, it would take half a second to sign the paperwork. That would be one less charge against you. Whatever. We get a list of all of his charges, by the way. Yeah. There's, uh, as you said, there's fantasy sequences featuring a flying Sam. That was actually a little puppet that they filmed. They overcranked the speed so that it would look like a, a, a beautifully flowing uh, wing. It, it looks very good. Yes. Like if you hadn't told me it was a puppet, I would have just thought it was a guy flapping, like a guy up on a on mm-hmm. on a. Harness. I didn't tell you it was a puppet. Right. <laughs> if someone had like, <laughs> almost everything I didn't was, know it was a puppet. <laughs> the clouds, the mist, everything was done in camera. They had different kinds of clouds they had made. Uh, it's just mm-hmm. amazing. Like the special effects are incredible. The explosion in the restaurant they had to do in a way that wouldn't destroy the irreplaceable and very precious windows that were act- in the actual restaurant where they were filming. Oh. Uh, yeah, so the movie gets made. Uh, it premieres in England. Everyone loves it. It's a hit in Europe. Uh, no one, No one wants to release it in America. Sid Sheinberg is the producer who refuses to release it in America in its current state. He is listed ultimately in the credits as Worst Boy. Amazing. Uh, but he demands the movie be recut. It's a two-hour and 20-minute movie. It's cut down to 90 minutes and given a happy ending. Uh, almost all the fantasy sequences are cut. Uh, almost the entire ending is cut. Uh, they actually add back stuff with Jill to, to boost the love story. And it ends with Sam and Jill living happily ever after. Uh, it's available on the Blu-ray. You can watch the Love Conquers All version. It's really weird. Um, it's got some alternate takes, got some alternate lines. Uh, and uh, and there was a huge fight. Gilliam, what Gilliam ended up doing to get this movie released intact is he secretly and kind of illegally set up secret screenings of it for American critics. Nice. So they could just start saying, this is one of the best movies I've ever seen. And they did. And eventually, enough people were saying, this is an amazing movie, that they had no choice but to release it in America, almost uncut. The version we watched is not the version that was released in America. That version was still missing footage. The version we saw also isn't the European version. It's the new, the latest version that Terry Gilliam was like, this is the good version. Although, in the commentary track, Gilliam says... This is too long. He's like, I'm watching this right now. And he's like, I'm just realizing there's all this stuff I could cut down. He's like, he's like, I just, I should, he's like, uh, looking at it now, I, I I should probably have tightened this movie up. There's a lot of extraneous stuff, which I thought was really interesting for him to say at this point. Or when There this, was a lot of extraneous running. There was a lot of running. The um, running scenes went on for way, way too long. I'm yeah. sorry. I just, I can't, I don't care <laughs> about the running. There's okay? a lot of chasing. There's you they if unless you're gonna show some actual character development between the characters and not just the end results of the character development, I don't care about the running. You don't like the running. Maze, you ever watch Doctor Who? Um, at least they were talking while they were running in Doctor Who. In this movie, it was just them like weirdly looking at each other and being weirded out by each other. <laughs> like I. I complained during that part of the movie because at no point do we ever see him explain anything to her. We're just supposed to assume that he does. Right. And I hate when movies do that. I hate it. Like, I want to see the reactions of people. That's why I watch these movies. (laughs) I think probably that scene does exist. And Gilliam was like, 
I don't like Kim Grace's performance. Well, then he should get over himself. <laughs> so this movie came out. It wasn't a huge hit, but it ended up becoming a cult hit. It cost $15 million to make. It only made $9 million in the U.S., but it was doing. it did really well in Europe. I don't really put much stake in the U.S. movie system, to be yeah. honest. It's considered one of the one of the greatest British films of all time, even though it you know it was unsuccessful in America. But uh, well, luckily yeah. Americans only make up part of the population of the world, so it's okay. As we said up top, though, it's in, it influenced like a million filmmakers after it came out, including including our boy, our boy, the, not the worst boy, our boy, our boy. Uh, Guillermo del Toro, who uh, who on the on the we watched the Criterion Blu-ray of mm-hmm. this, who on the Criterion uh, website his top ten list, he writes Terry Gilliam is a living treasure. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe once upon a time he was. I don't know how big of a treasure I'd say he was now. And we are squandering him foolishly with every film of his that remains unmade. Again, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> it took him so long to get the man who killed Don Quixote made, and it went over like a, a wet piece of paper, like a sack of wet mice. As people, as people said, uh, it sure was a film. Proof that our world is the poorer for this can be found in two of his masterpieces. Gilliam is a fabulist, pregnant with images, exploding with them, actually, and fierce, untamed imagination. I agree with that. His imagination is fierce. It's pretty untamed. <laughs> he says he's he's watching the fantasy sequences in Brazil and he's like some people say that like this represents this, this represents this part of Sam's character and he's like I, I honestly I just thought it was some cool stuff to put in a movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's when he was like I think maybe I should have reined myself in a little bit. He's like there's some stuff in this movie that I just thought was cool to see. Now I see where it's just kind of like I thought it would have been a worse movie if they hadn't put it in. So I needed something to interrupt the unending running yeah. <laughs> sadness of Sam's life. So Del Toro says he understands that, quote, bad taste is the ultimate declaration of independence from the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. And I get what Del Toro's saying, but also I think that notion that, like, true independence is, is, isn't, is not being afraid to say F you to the man I think there's too many white privileged male filmmakers who use that as an excuse to do and say pretty terrible things. Mm-hmm. Like take away my freedom of speech, man. Like you just can't handle the like my my imagination. I'm like, "No, you're just being a jerk." <laughs> uh, he jumps with no safety net and drags us with him into a world made coherent only by his undying faith in the tale he is telling. And I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Like, Gilliam doesn't stop to explain the world in Brazil, but you, you he's doing it with such confidence that you're like, I guess this makes sense. Yep. <laughs> like, sure, whatever. I don't know why there's Mike. That's, there's... that's how I speak, by the way. I just start talking with confidence and people are like, uh-huh, uh-huh. I'm like, thank you. I'm not saying anything, but thank you for understanding. <laughs> Brazil remains one of the most important films of my life. And Time Bandits is a rule Dahlian landmark to all fantasy films. Uh, and then he says that his daughter, his youngest daughter, laughed at the moment where Kevin's parents exploded in Time Bandits. So, 
Uh, well, he should show her Brazil because lots of people explode in Brazil. I liked Time Bandits better. You asked me up top if that's interesting. You asked me up top if uh, there was gore in this movie, and I said no. Uh, and then you said I was lying. <laughs> yep. <laughs> there's a jelly meat woman in this movie. What do you mean there's no gore in this movie? But you were upset because when Michael Palin got shot in the head and he took off the mask and there was like brain matter everywhere. Yeah. Um, oh, and Gillian, uh, Guillermo del Toro also says, uh, in 1985, I heard of sold out screenings of Brazil in New York and L.A., I sat alone in a Texas theater and felt he made it just for me. I was transformed. I walked out of Brazil, humming Cayman's score, and onto a deserted parking lot. I shed a tear for every empty seat I left behind. He probably didn't have to cry about it. No. Yeah. You're in Texas. What did you expect to happen? And then people wrote in about like how they had the same experience with a Gambito Toro's movies. And I'm like, dude, don't tell him that nobody went to go see his movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's not cool. A lot of people go see his movies. Yeah. But also, okay, so clearly the world build it like to to ask how do you think this movie influenced Gambito Toro would be an absurdity. <laughs> That'd be like asking how it influenced Blade Runner. Blade Runner came first. Blade Runner came first? Yes. Why did I think Blade Runner? That was... I don't know why that was in my head. I, I mean, think it's because I said that a scene reminded me of Blade Runner. Yeah. The little that I watched of it. Uh, Yeah. You did say that. Yeah. Blade right, that's Runner. That's probably why that was in my brain. Blade Runner shares a similar... Not a similar, but a, a, a similar like thread of like a world that's like overcrowded with machinery mm-hmm. and, and technology that's not helping anybody, but everyone relies on it. Yeah. It's, this movie looks great. Like, Brazil just looks amazing. That it only cost... Uh, Fifteen million dollars to make, which I guess was a lot of money back then, but it just blows my mind. Like this is a, it's a beautiful looking film. Everyone does a good job in it, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, they all did great. Yeah, um, I didn't point out that Jim Broadbent plays uh plays Catherine Hellman's plastic surgeon. This was like you want to of- know what one of this, what one of the inspirations for this movie was? What? For the eight and a half. That's right. I did read that. <laughs> I did read that. Yeah, like the fantasy sequences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I find that fascinating. And I'm happy that we watched that movie because that makes sense to us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's just, there's so much, like, you can just, there's so much written about this movie. Because mm-hmm. uh, this one of those movies had a, had a, had a wacky, uh, a wacky production and uh, Racky post-production and a, and a long life afterwards. Uh, Gillian would go on after this in 88 to make The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, which was uh, a huge flop. That movie cost $46 million to make and Jeez. made eight. Dollars. <laughs> it cost $46 million and made $8 million. Uh, not eight dollars. Despite $8 despite having uh, apparently Robin, Star Wars Robin episode a Star Wars episode eight was also based on Brazil. They're all everything's based on Brazil, and yeah, Baron Munchausen was the one where people were just like, "We got to reel this guy in. Like mm-hmm. he's out of control. He has a dangerous set. 
Sarah Polly's Terrorized. Uh, his next movie wouldn't come out until 91, and it's The Fisher King, and it's a very small character drama with Robin Williams and Jeff Bridges. And that cost $24 million to make and earned $72 million. And people were like, you're back on track, baby! Don't ever give Terry Gilliam confidence. Then he it's made the answer to the question. <laughs> then he did 12 Monkeys, which was his biggest hit, I think. That was a $30 million movie that made $170 million. And 12 Monkeys was a huge hit. I'm not a huge fan of it. It uses a lot of the aesthetics of Brazil. I don't think to as good a, an end. I need to rewatch it. I haven't seen it since college, but uh, I know a lot of people love it. But they needed Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which was a horrifyingly like tortured production schedule that bombed. He did The Brothers Grimm, which no one saw and bombed. He did Tideland, which people said was actually like an evil movie for a human being to make, which bombed. He did The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, in which his lead actor, Heath Ledger, died during filming. So they had to replace him. And instead of replace, like instead of just refilming his stuff, they replaced him with Johnny Depp, Jude Law, and Colin Farrell. And we're like, he's just going to transform every time he like enters the Imaginarium. Which was an interesting idea, but you chose three guys who were kind of interchangeable at the time. <laughs> uh, then he did Zero Theorem, which I understand is an interesting movie. I never saw it. And then he did The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, which he was trying to make for 20 years and which no one cared about once it came out. Uh, and as far as I know, he just sits around now and complains about how no one gets him. No like one... a teenager. Yep. Nobody gets me. I'm Terry Gilliam. He's just a... I think he's just an angry old man now. Yeah, he did a movie. He tried to make The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. And the original time he tried to make it, it all fell apart. And they actually made a documentary about it called Lost in La Mancha. Mm -hmm. And that was the movie I watched where I was like, oh, this isn't a guy who's like life is being unfair to. Terry Gilliam's just impossible to work with. Like, None of this would have happened if he hadn't been, if he hadn't behaved the way he was. And like, that was when I just lost sympathy for Terry Gilliam. I was like, oh, oh, this is all you, dude. <laughs> um, yeah. This isn't a guy who exiled himself from Sweden. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> Terry Gilliam. Although, you know, like all of those directors, you know, they all have their problematic sides. Um, who doesn't at this point in time? doesn't? Well, speaking of problematic, what is our next movie? No idea. Our next movie. Wait, wait. I got this. I got this. I got this. I am so excited about it. I got this. Okay. Give me half a second. Do you really have this? I don't understand I what you're this. doing. I have this. I got it. I got it. It's fine. It's fine. Do you have this written down somewhere? I have it. It's fine. It's fine. It'll be fine. Just, it's fine. You're giving me a lot to cut out. <laughs> Our next movie is Top Gun. Top Gun. I am so excited to watch Top Gun with you. <laughs> have you seen? No. <laughs> it's crazy timing because, of course, the sequel just came out. Mm -hmm. Top Gun Maverick. Yep. Um, you know, 30 some odd years after the original. Uh, and I am so excited to watch this Tony Scott movie with you. 
which I haven't seen since I was very young. Uh, I am interested in reevaluating it, uh, revisiting it, seeing what holds up and what doesn't. And it is a far right turn from <laughs> Brazil and the thing and Ron. <laughs> And uh, we're going to then after that, we're going to do another major uh, 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 hairpin turn into into uh, into uh, Miyazaki territory. So into one of my favorite Miyazaki films of all time. Uh, yeah, we've got two Miyazaki's coming up almost back to back. One, yeah. you know. We only have 25 movies left. Oh, geez, Louise. <laughs> Can we finish The Ecstasy of Influence before the end of the year? We can certainly try. If we do, maybe we can go back to uh, to our short stories. Oh, but of course, we're going to have to, you know, we got Pinocchio coming up. We're going to watch every single Pinocchio movie that's coming no, out. No, we're just going to watch Guillermo del Toro's <laughs> Pinocchio. We're going to watch all of them. <laughs> and we're going to have to watch Guillermo del Toro's new TV show, even though uh, he didn't, I, I don't think he directed any of it. I think he just wrote some of it. What's the TV show? It's that anthology series based on mm. short stories, A Cabinet of Curiosities. Uh, and apparently his Pinocchio isn't even based on Pinocchio. It's more of a, as he said, Frankenstein story, if you can believe it. So that'll be coming up in the future. Uh, Instead of building a man, they build a boy. Until then, don't we all? Don't we all build <sighs> nope. the boy? We all build Brahms the boy. Uh, but until we we take to the skies, until we take that highway to the danger zone, until I take my breath away... With 1986s, we only spent one year in 1985. We skipped a bunch of years because he hated all of those. Movies. He did no wait, two years in 1985. Ron and Brazil were 1985. Mm -hmm. uh, we're on to 1986. Top Gun, Tony Scott. Until then, I am Phil, and I'm Willow, and we'll see you when it's, it's Del Toro time. time.